Well, if you'll take your Bibles and open with me this morning to John chapter 17. Uh, This past week, if you received the church email or uh, you visited our church website, uh, you have noticed that we have put out a reading challenge to you uh, that is kind of multifaceted, if you will, in the midst of all of the craziness going on uh, around our world today and in the midst of you and I being inundated with news feeds and uh, various announcements about the coronavirus and all the fears and the, the anxieties that have been kind of swelling up in our hearts and minds these past few weeks, we thought it would be really good for us as a church to focus ourselves upon the Word of God and specifically to take ourselves uh, through this particular reading plan uh, right to the Passion Week. So hopefully you're tracking along with us on that reading plan. It's kind of two-sided, if you will. On the one hand, uh, we have the Synoptic Gospels primarily walking us through the, the triumphal entry all the way up to the resurrection. Uh, we're reading various portions, mostly out of Matthew, that are helping us keep ourselves focused on Christ and up on this Passion Week The other side of that is some meditation verses, some memory texts that we're putting before you out of John 13 through 17. Again, our primary goal with this reading plan is to get our church family in the midst of these days, to get our church family focused in the word of God and to turn ourselves to that which is most important, namely the gospel of Christ. It is our prayer through this reading plan in these next couple of weeks, that you, maybe anew or freshly, will be focused and fixated upon your Savior. Uh, That the gospel, this last week of Christ and his cross and the resurrection, will be at the forefront of all of your thoughts. John 13 through 17 Uh, uniquely sets us in the last few hours of Jesus' life. These gospel accounts we're going to read, the writers are very careful to walk us through various episodes and to capture various moments of these last few weeks of Jesus' life. But John uniquely captures for us these last few hours of Jesus' earthly life and ministry prior to the cross. What I want to do this morning is we're going to focus on John 17 in particular these next two Sunday mornings. I'm going to preach two sermons out of that and kind of draw us into our Easter week celebration. I trust that as we spend our time in John 17 these next couple of weeks, again, that our our faith will be encouraged and strengthened by his grace. The question I'm putting before us out of John 17, if you have your Bibles open, The question I'm putting before us is, what was on the mind of Christ in these hours before he would fall under the judgment and wrath of his father at the cross? In John 17, we're going to see as clearly as any text in scripture, what was on our Savior's mind as he moves toward this moment that the Father had set before him before the creation of the world. 
Let me set some context to kind of get us into John 17. This is going to be a lengthy introduction as we kind of catch up to where we are in this particular portion of the narrative. John chapter 13 through 17 takes place in what is called the upper room. According to Luke, Jesus would send Peter and John to prepare the place where they together, as disciples with their Savior, would celebrate the Passover. It is in this place, this upper room, where Jesus would institute what we call the Lord's Supper. These are during the days of the Passover celebration. If you remember the Passover celebration from some of our discussions in the book of Hebrews, the Passover was the celebration in which the Jewish nation recalled to mind the faithfulness of God in delivering his people from the wicked suppression of Pharaoh. Outside the walls of this upper room, as Jesus and his disciples gathered, Jerusalem would have been a buzz with pilgrims who ascended into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast and to honor their God. For Jesus and his disciples, however, secrecy would shroud their celebration. When we walk into John 13 through 17, we must remember that Jesus is now a marked man. The religious leaders of his day had made the clear decision that they were going to murder Jesus. They would remove him from the influence that he was having upon the people. So Jesus would send Peter and John into Jerusalem. And as Jesus would instruct them, they would look for a man who was carrying a water jar. He would take them to a large upper room furnished for this particular event. And Luke describes for us in chapter 22, verse number 13, that Peter and John would go into this upper room and they would prepare the Passover feast for Jesus to celebrate with his disciples. Let me allow D.A. Carson to kind of reconstruct these events for us. On Thursday of the Passion Week, he writes, the Jews would have killed the Paschal Lamb following the command of Exodus chapter 12. Joseph records that the lambs were slaughtered between the ninth and 11th hour, which would have been between 3 and 5 p.m. So Jesus, Carson writes, and his disciples would have entered the city around noon on Thursday the 14th, the, day of the, the 14th day of the first month. They would have secured the upper room, took a lamb to the temple court, and killed it. They would then roast it with bitter herbs, according to Exodus chapter 12, They would have purchased the wine and the unleavened bread. And then as Matthew 26 clearly states, they prepared the Passover. After nightfall on Thursday evening at some point, Jesus would join his disciples and they would celebrate the Passover together. The Passover would be followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Friday evening, the Sabbath would begin. This particular Sabbath, as John will note in John chapter 19, verse 31, was a special Sabbath. For Jesus, this would be his last Passover. Within hours, he would be crucified. As a matter of fact, theologically, this would be the last Passover every ever celebrated as the shadow the festival would give way to the reality 
And as Paul would note for us in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is our Passover lamb. John 13 through 17, or at least most of it, takes us into this upper room. At the end of this text, John chapter 18, we're going to see Jesus lead his disciples out and they will cross the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 13 can be divided into several major sections. If you've got your Bibles open, you can flip back, if you will, and see these passages with me. The first section is John chapter 13, verse number 1, all the way up through John chapter 13, verse number 30. It is here that Jesus will wash the disciples' feet. He will warn them of a betrayer that is present among them. And in verse number 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, speaking of Judas, he immediately goes out, and it was night. That's kind of the first section of John chapter 13 through 17. Verse number 31 begins a new section. It's Jesus with his 11 disciples, the men who would now carry forth the gospel commission. He begins with a great commandment in verse number 31. This section from verse 31 all the way through the end of chapter 15 is filled with commands and exhortations. It is here that Jesus will seek to warn his disciples. He will comfort them with promises. And of course, very familiar passages, he will speak of the one who will come, namely the Holy Spirit as Jesus would depart from his disciples. Jesus knew in these texts what his disciples were about to experience. This was his moment with them. He would prepare them for the frenzy of the cross, the persecution that would fall upon them soon thereafter. It is in this moment Jesus would have his time with his disciples as he knew the fears and anxieties that would soon fall upon them and he takes his moment to prepare them for the task that is before them. The final section of John 13 through 17 is of course John 17. This is the section that is often referred to as the hot priestly prayer. It is here that Jesus will enter into communion with his father. And he will do so on behalf of his people. The structure of this prayer is rather simple. Jesus is going to pray for himself, which may be a little shocking. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. He's going to pray for himself in the first five verses. The rest of this text, verse 6 through 19, he's going to hone in and pray for his disciples after all of the instruction, the commands, the exhortations, the warnings, the promises. Jesus is going to pray for his disciples prior to being betrayed and led away. And finally, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is going to pray for us. Those who would believe through the disciples' ministry. It is important for us as we walk into John 17, we must understand this is holy ground we stand on. Unlike any other text of Scripture, is John 17. 
Throughout the gospel accounts, we will find Jesus often praying. We will find him removing himself from disciples. We'll find him in the moment praying for various needs that might exist. We find him at the tomb of Lazarus calling out to his father. But it's in John 17 we find the prayer of Jesus recorded in this lengthy communion that he experiences with his father. John 17 is unlike any other passage in the Old or New Testament. Calvin would say of John 17, nowhere do we see the soul of Jesus like we see it in this particular text. John 17, Jesus is going to lift his heart up to his father. I wonder what the disciples were experiencing in this moment. As Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven in verse number one. I wonder if they felt a little awkward being here in this particular room as Jesus lifted up his prayers to his father. There's there's earnestness in this prayer from Jesus. Throughout my pastoral ministry, and I'm sure Tim could tell many stories of this. I've been with families as they spend their last few minutes with a loved one. I've been in rooms with sons and daughters as they've said goodbye to moms and dads. I've been in rooms with husbands and wives as they have said goodbye to their spouses. Inevitably in those moments, when that moment does come and the loved one is speaking to the one who is passing, inevitably I will step out of the room. Unless the family would ask me to stay in the room and to be with them in those very moments, I will step out of the room because I recognize this is their moment with their loved one. I need to step away. This is their time. In some ways, I wonder if the disciples felt that way. As Jesus lifted up his voice to his father and he pleaded with him. Philip Melanchthon, the partner of Martin Luther during the Reformation, would say about John 17, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer here offered up in John 17 by the Son of God himself to his Father. Never a voice heard more exalted, more holy, more fruitful. John 17 is a unique text of scripture. So I want to move into it now after that lengthy introduction. I want to move into it. I want to ask the question in the first five verses, what was on our Savior's mind in these hours just before the cross? Let's read the text together. If you will turn to John chapter 17, verse number one, let us now hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In just a few moments, Jesus will leave the upper room with his disciples. He will cross the Kidron Valley. Judas will betray him. And soon enough, he will go to the cross. What was on Jesus' mind? I've got two thoughts for you this morning. One is his suffering, and two was his glory. Looking back at verse number one, Jesus, at the very beginning of this, Father, after he lifted his eyes to heaven, Father, the hour has come. This hour that Jesus speaks of here is not 60 minutes. It's, it's an event that Jesus is now looking up on as if it, is, it has arrived. This event that Jesus speaks of, it's obvious, it's the cross. This hour that Jesus refers to is language that John has tracked throughout the gospel account. This hour had been anticipated going all the way back to chapter 2, verse number 4 at a small wedding in Cana. You remember that scene. The celebration is taking place. The groom who is responsible for providing all of uh, the material for the feast, the wine runs out. Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and she makes an appeal to Jesus. And Jesus would respond in a very sharp manner to his mother, reminding her, that his hour had not come. Three plus years from that moment, Jesus would wait until the hour would come. And John's going to trace that theme throughout the Gospel of John. He's going to begin in chapter 2. He's going to come back in chapter 7. He's going to note it again in chapter 8. He's going to bring it back to us in chapter 12 and 13. He's going to remind us over and over and over, Jesus' hour had not come. His hour had not come. And then we come to chapter 13, and all of a sudden, the hour was up on him. When Jesus appeals to his father, He begins the prayer by noting the hour has now come. Jesus knew that this was the moment for which he had been sent. The moment he had been waiting for for 33 plus years. Now that time was before him. This is the moment that had been ordained from before the foundation of the world. This this hour, this unique and special moment in the plan of God. The reason for which he sent his son. To use Peter's words in Acts chapter 4. The hour that Jesus refers to here. Is that event of which he would be turned over to Herod and Pontius Pilate. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And they would all do according to Jesus. According to the father's plan. Peter's words. They would do what had been predestined to take 
place. This is the hour that all eternity had looked toward. And now in this prayer, Jesus lifts his eyes to the heavens and to his father. And he notes it, the hour had come. This gospel account has been anticipating this moment, this this event, the cross, from the very beginning of John's writings. I'll note a few of them just to feel the thread that goes throughout this gospel account. John chapter 1, one, you remember the scene there with John the Baptist with his disciples and, and they see Jesus coming across the hillside and it is John who looks up and he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, this is what they're anticipating. This whole gospel account is built and moving toward this particular moment. They're introduced in John 1 with John the Baptist crying out, Behold, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is Jesus himself in John chapter 3. After this lengthy section with Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's the anticipation. Just like John the Baptist, there's the anticipation of Jesus. In the wilderness, they were bitten by the snakes. Moses lifted up the serpent. They they look up on the serpent and they live. And Jesus takes that, that shadow, if you will, and he brings it into the reality. So must also the Son of Man be lifted up. And those who look up on the Son of Man, when they believe, they have eternal life. But there it is, Jesus anticipating it. He's looking at this hour that's coming, the Son of Man. He must be lifted up. We're going to see it again in John chapter 10 when Jesus, in that extended metaphor of the good shepherd, when he says to his disciples, I am the good shepherd. And here he is anticipating the hour. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But it's not only John the Baptist and Jesus, it's also the high priest in John chapter 11. Such a fascinating little passage for us as we think about this this event, the cross event. John notes here that Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to the religious rulers, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people Not that the whole nation should perish. They were debating on what they should do with Jesus. And and Caiaphas intervenes and, and he understands what is at stake here. If we allow Jesus to continue in this ministry and the crowds keep amassing to Christ, then the Roman authorities, they're going to come and they're going to kill all of us. Jesus, Caiaphas understands this. One man should perish or the whole nation should perish. Well, John picks up on this saying, and he provides us this theological commentary. He says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. Here's the anticipation. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Throughout the Gospel of John, there is always this building anticipation of what Jesus recognizes in the prayer here. That the hour is coming, the hour is coming. 
Jesus would be the Passover lamb. Jesus would be lifted up. Jesus would die for the sins of his people. You know, for us, when we look at John chapter 17, and we see Jesus say this, Father, the hour has come. For us, when we, when we hear that, we eagerly anticipate the fulfillment of this hour. Because we know what it means for us, right? We know it means our redemption. So we hear this, and there's eager anticipation that builds in us. But for Jesus... When he lifts his prayer for the Father, to the Father, and he speaks of this hour, for him this meant staggering suffering. Suffering unlike any before or after. Jesus knew what the hour meant for him. The innocent and holy one would fall under the wrath of God and be turned over into the hands of sinners. For Jesus, the hour meant suffering. As a young boy, Jesus probably memorized Many Old Testament passages. We get into this discussion and think through the humanity of Christ and his understanding of the Old Testament. Certainly he, as many Jewish boys of his day, would have memorized large sections of the Old Testament. We could probably assume, rightfully so, that Jesus would have memorized or at least been incredibly familiar with Isaiah 53. Probably as a very young boy. Well, Jesus would have also known that he was the servant of which Isaiah spoke of. When Jesus would have read or recited Isaiah 53, he would have known that it was speaking of him. The hour for Christ, according to Isaiah, meant that he would be despised and rejected by men. The hour, according to Isaiah, meant that he was to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would bear our griefs. He would be smitten of God, pierced for our transgressions. The hour, according to Isaiah, meant that Christ would be crushed for our iniquities, that he would receive the chastisement that would ultimately bring us peace. When Jesus would have looked into Isaiah 53, he would have seen the servant himself who would receive the wounds that would bring our healing. He knew it would be him that the Lord would lay upon the iniquity of us all. He would have read that he would be oppressed and afflicted. That he would be a lamb that would be led to the slaughter. That he would be cut off from the land of the living. That he would be stricken for the transgressions of the people. He knew that it was he for whom it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
He knew he would be put to grief. He knew his soul would be in anguish. He knew that he would bear our transgressions, our iniquities. He knew his soul would be poured out to death and be numbered with the transgressors. And as Isaiah kind of hits its apex, he knew that he would bear the sins of many. For Jesus, the hour meant suffering. And in this most intimate moment, as he begins this prayer, Father, the hour has come. Look with me back in verse number four. Jesus, understanding all of this, it's almost unintelligible for us. He is committed to a relentless obedience in this hour. He says in verse number four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He speaks in language as if it's already happened. But there is in our Savior this steadfast desire that even in light of all of the harsh realities that this hour was going to bring up on him, he was going to obey the Father's plan. In John 4, he would say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we see that here in this prayer. The hour has come. Flip over to John chapter 18. We see some of the practical realities of Jesus' obedience in John chapter 18. If you remember what happens when Jesus leaves the upper room and they head across the Kidron Valley, it is there. They will meet Judas with these soldiers. Judas will betray him. But before that betrayal, Jesus enters into the garden and we find that incredible prayer which he will lift up to the Father. And we see the, 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 that he's staggered. He's struggling. Father, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus would then be betrayed. In John chapter 18, we find this episode. Simon Peter, verse number 10. As Jesus was being betrayed and taken by the soldiers, he, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant. Cut off his right ear. John notes for us the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, to its sheath. And here it is. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? For Jesus, this hour had built and built and built 33 or so years of life. And now it was before him. And what rises up in our Savior's hearts, in our Savior's heart in this moment, is a resolve to obey his Father's will. And that will is drinking the cup of wrath the Father shall give to him. Randolph Street, you're involved in these readings. And I trust as you go through these readings, we will learn to appreciate our Savior, and what he experienced at this hour. 
It's easy to pass through these things quickly, especially with what's going on around our country today. My guess is we have all spent more time watching Fox News or CNN or ABC or reading newspapers or checking out the latest blogs and information we can find online. But as we build toward Easter, oh, to bring ourselves back to this moment and to see and to appreciate the sufferings that Christ would fully embrace and he does so for your salvation. In these last hours, what was on the mind of Christ, what weighed on his soul, his sufferings. Secondly, I want you to look at verse number one again. Father, the hour has come. There's the first. Sufferings of Christ are on his heart, are on his mind. But notice what he says on the back side of this verse. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So, so his sufferings are on his mind. The hour is before him. But what else is on our Savior's mind is his own glory. Twice he's going to appeal to the Father for this. We read it in verse number one. If you skip down to verse number five, you see it again. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. This is the Lord's prayer. Only Christ can pray this. It's kind of odd that we often speak of the Matthew 6 or the Luke 11 prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples, we often call those the Lord's Prayer. You've probably been in homes where people have a, a plaque that's on their wall and, it, and the title will be the Lord's Prayer. And yet the Lord could never pray that prayer. Because in that prayer, he teaches his disciples as they pray to the Father, forgive us for our trespasses. This is the Lord's Prayer. Only Jesus can pray these words in verse number one and verse number five. Glorify your son, Father. Glorify me in your own presence. What is Jesus praying for here? Well, I think verse five kind of answers the question for us. Let me read all of it. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is recalling to mind, if you will, this condition or this state that he had with the Father before the world was ever created. You see, it's in the incarnation that Jesus lays aside his glory, if you will. The one who was co-equal with the Father, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, lovingly descended into our sorrow-filled world, our sin-cursed world, and he entered as a servant. In his humiliation, Paul picks up on this in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, speaking of Christ, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. And he was born in the likeness of men. This is, this is the Christ. And in this Christological hymn that Paul pins for the early church, he opens up, opens up to us the, the depth of Christ's humiliation, if you will. He emptied himself. 
He made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing as other translations will translate that particular phrase. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Gordon Fee in his commentary on 1 Corinthians writes about this particular phrase. And he says, Jesus entered history not as a Lord, but as a slave. He entered into history with no rights, no privileges, no advantages. And as another writer kind of jumps into this and he says, Jesus entered in from eternal delight into a realm of misery. Paul will pick up on this very idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he writes, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor. And now in this moment before his father as he considers this hour of which his humiliation will be on full exposure before the world. As he considers this moment, he prays to the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's as if Jesus in this prayer, in his mind, he recalls back to the days in eternity past before the world was ever created and he remembers the glory that he shared with his father. He recalls that to mind. D.A. Carson writes, this petition of Jesus is a request of the father to reverse the self-emptying entailed in his incarnation And to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. Such angst in our Savior's soul. As he walks into this moment, this hour that he had been sent for. He knew the suffering that he was getting ready to undertake. He knew the abandonment that he would experience under the wrath of God. And yet it's in this moment our Savior lifts his eyes to heaven. And he appeals to the Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Now what's interesting in this prayer is we recognize this. The Son's glory would come through the hour. It would come through the cross and through suffering. That is what would lead to this restoration, if you will, of the Son's glory. He would suffer and the suffering would then lead to his glory. Jesus, in this moment, as he appeals to the Father, this is, this is what's on his heart. Now, it's important to understand, as we conclude this morning, it's important to understand, Jesus understood very clearly. Go back to verse number one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that, and there's a purpose behind this, that the Son may glorify you. So the question is, is how does this, the glory of the Son lead to the Father's glory? Well, look at verse number two. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The father had given the son authority over all flesh. In order that the son 
would give eternal life to all whom the Father had given to him. We're going to catch on, we're going to pick up on that phrase next Sunday as Jesus turns his attention to pray for his disciples and to pray for those who would believe through the preaching of the gospel of the disciples. But here, in verse number two, The Son has given authority over all flesh that he might give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. And what is eternal life? Verse number three, that they may know God. So the Son, through his work, through this hour, through his suffering, would ransom to God a people. The Son would bring to the Father a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this people would be granted eternal life. And eternal life, they would know God and raise up their anthem to God to lift their mouths and their voices in praise to the triune God. You see, through this hour, Christ would purchase a people for God. Christ understood this. Randolph Street. In these most unique days, these weird days of this pandemic that has drawn us away from one another, not allowing us to meet in this room together as the church, God forbid that this pandemic would draw our eyes away from Christ. Over these next few weeks, turn your attention to these readings Turn your attention to John 13 through 17. Dig your heart into these things and ask God to continually bring your heart and your mind back to that which is of most importance and that is Christ. Let John 17 minister to your soul. Look and review this. Think this through these coming days. Go back and see what Jesus is praying for in these hours and be strengthened by his grace as we walk through these days. Next Sunday, we'll come back to John 17, and we're going to finish up this particular text, and we're going to see Jesus not only pray for his own glory and be mindful of his own suffering, but we're going to see Jesus in these hours turn his attention to his disciples and ultimately to us. And I trust through this time, we indeed will be encouraged and strengthened. Let us pray together. Well, Father, as we conclude this morning and this reflection from John chapter 17, Lord, that you would use these thoughts, this incredible moment as Jesus entered into communion, prayer with you, his Father. Use these thoughts from this prayer to strengthen your people here this morning as they gather in homes with their family maybe alone in their apartments Father that you would draw their hearts and their minds to this incredible prayer of Christ set our minds as we prepare for Easter upon the sufferings of Jesus of this hour that 
we earnestly anticipate with joy in our hearts because we know it is our redemption. Let us be mindful. This hour for Christ meant his suffering. Let us appreciate and grow in our understanding of what our Savior experienced. And Father, as we hear Christ pray for his own glory, the ramifications of it that would lead to the glory of his Father and a people for himself who would know God. Oh, let us be encouraged as indeed our Savior has been glorified. That glory has been restored. This is our Christ. And even today, he lives to intercede for us. Father, encourage and strengthen your people today from this glorious text of John 17. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.